scripture reading will be coming from uh, Mark 14, 32 through 42. Praise the Lord. Amen. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Brother Henry. Yes, sir. It is a... Uh, a great day to be with you in worship. I know we have a number of guests uh, related to our baptism, but also a number of guests uh, otherwise today, and it's just a privilege to have you with us today. I want to extend my welcome to you. My name is Philip Long, and I have the privilege of uh, serving as one of, the, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a great privilege to be with you. Let's begin in prayer today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the chance now to be before your word. We are amazed uh, by your grace, by your willingness to come and to speak to us in your Son, first and foremost, and above all, through your Son, and then recorded for us to be read here as your word some 2,000 years ago, that we may know the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of what you have accomplished for us. Father, we come uh, to this passage that Henry just read just amazed, amazed at your grace, amazed at your willingness to come and to suffer, your willingness to give of yourself in such an amazing way. God, may we hear words of faith, of trust from your Son, Jesus Christ. May those words, by the power of your Spirit, transform our hearts. May your words um, penetrate even the hardest of hearts among us. God, for those that do not yet know you, we pray for new life. For those that do know you, we pray in a new way that we would see the life that we have in Christ and that we'd repent of our sin, that we would believe in Jesus once more. Lord, bless the time that we get to share, even as we prepare for baptism, in just a few moments. And may this time be worshipful unto you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Most of us tend to fall generally into uh, one of, of two kind of general categories. Some of us are planners, 
We like things to be organized and thought through. Other people are kind of the go with the flow type people. You know what I mean? Some people like things to be organized and every hour kind of planned and set. Other people just kind of figure it out as they go, fly by the seat of their pants. Uh, for some, for the planners, you feel freedom when you've got a structure in your, your day and in your week. You, you have the freedom to, to know what's next and to go about your thing. And you feel stressed when you don't have a plan and you don't know what's coming next. And the opposite is true for the, for the go with the flow people. You feel some freedom when there's nothing on the calendar. And you can kind of just figure it out as you go. And you feel stressed when there's too many things on the calendar. And you feel overwhelmed by a long list of things to do. I, I certainly see pros and cons to both personality styles. But, but I'll be honest. I don't know how you go with the flow people survive. <laughs> I like my organized calendar. And I don't know how you live that just kind of make things happen. Data, I don't know how you eat. I don't know how you show up anywhere. I don't know how you do it. I know you exist and you, you make that work and you're good at it. I just have no comprehension of how you function daily as a go with the flow type person. For some of us, a color coded calendar that magically syncs in the cloud to all of my devices and is instantly available at one click of a button is a great gift of living in a technological age. For others of you, like our student pastor who sees my calendar at some times, it drives him bananas. How could you possibly function with all those colors and lines and dots and things? And this is how I work and it works great for me. We are different and I'm okay with that. There are good things about different ways. We approach our plans differently, but the reality is all of us make a plan, do we not? Even not making a plan is a plan to just figure it out in the moment and go with whatever strikes you or your desires or however you guys plan things that don't make a plan. It is a plan. Not making a plan is a plan. Some of us are more rigid with those plans. Other people can be flexible. Situations change. Things happen. Questions come up. And you got to decide, am I going to stick with my plan or am I going to change it? And the reason that we have to be flexible and we all make plans is we don't know everything do we? We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And even the best laid plans are subject to change. We don't know everything and we don't always know what's best. And so when new information comes up, it might be that we need to change actions. We have to change our decisions. We realize sometimes our plans aren't best. And that dilemma might be as something as simple as where you're going to lunch today. Something might change the next little bit, and you've got to make plan changes in your plans, and that's okay. But sometimes there is, or there, this same dilemma can also be something much deeper, all the way down to the very posture of our hearts, the very way that we look at life. It boils down to this, whose plan are you following? Who is in control of your calendar? Who is in charge of your schedule? And the most fundamental, most significant thing to ask is, whose will are you following? Whose will are you following? Are you primarily driven by your will, your desires, your plans? Or are you living in submission to the will of God? Who makes the plans? 
Who sets the calendar? Whose will are you following? These weeks leading up to Easter, we are going through the last few chapters of Mark's gospel. And last week we saw where Jesus led the Passover meal, what became the Lord's Supper, instituting a new meal with his disciples about his body that would be broken and blood that was shed. That night before he's crucified, after the meal, they go out into a garden, and on the way, somewhere along the lines, he tells Peter about a betrayal he's going to commit. Just so you know, we don't skip passages around here, but this time we're saving that passage for what we're going to do next week. We're going and zooming in on what happens after that promise, and that's Jesus praying in a garden with his disciples. He comes to this place called Gethsemane, which meant an oil press, apparently a garden of, of olive trees, and there was some sense of, uh, of structure there. And he frequently, apparently, apparently he frequently uh, came here because his disciples knew this is where he would be. And as he's there, he prays what might be the single most important prayer ever prayed. It's not a long prayer. The entire prayer is our memory verse for this month, one verse. But it might be the most important prayer ever prayed because it's a prayer about the will. It's a prayer about the condition of our hearts, the posture of Jesus' heart. And it forces us to ask about the posture of our own heart. Jesus' prayer in that moment forever changed the course of history. That prayer is a hinge in the trajectory of all humanity ever and impacts your eternity from today forever is impacted by this prayer. Had Jesus not prayed this prayer, or had he prayed a different version of it, not submitting to the Father, we wouldn't be here, at least not in this way. We certainly wouldn't know God, and we certainly wouldn't follow him. This morning, I want to walk you through this passage in four steps. Jesus' sorrow our failure, Jesus' prayer, and our prayer. His sorrow, our failure, His prayer, our prayer. So the thing I think you can't miss, just a simple reading through the prayer at Gethsemane, is that Jesus faced great sorrow for us. Jesus faced great sorrow for us. I appreciate how descriptive Mark's language is. Verse 33, Jesus, it says, began to be greatly distressed, and troubled. Verse 34, Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful. And not just a little bit, sorrowful all the way up into death. In verse 35, it says, Jesus was so overwhelmed, he fell to the ground. Can't you hear his, his anguish, his pain, his struggle? You can't miss it. He's burdened and distressed. A typical posture of prayer for that culture, that day and age would be stand and pray. And yet Jesus is brought to his knees in prayer before the Father. And can't you see his humanity here? Sometimes people will think of Jesus, since he is fully God, they think of him as, as somehow a, a separate category, that he wasn't quite like us. But there's not a passage I can think of that makes it any clearer than this, that Jesus was fully God. And Jesus was fully man. He experienced all the same emotions and struggles and anguish and pains and sorrows that we face. He was not a robot. He was not emotionless. He was not a stoic. His divinity did not keep him from experiencing the fullness of his humanity. Fully God and fully man, Jesus 
walked into this suffering, this struggle, knowing what was coming and what was bringing him great stress and anguish and turmoil is that there is an hour that's arriving. That's the language he uses. Verse 35, he fell on the ground and prayed. Mark summarizes his prayer this way. He says, if, Jesus prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. This hour is a reference to his coming, crucifixion, and then his burial and resurrection. This hour is this critical moment in history where everything's going to change. And Jesus, thinking about that day coming, the next day, this is midnight probably. We're talking about the next day. He knows what's coming. He's fully God. He knows what's coming. And that hour, that moment was bringing him great, great sorrow. Perhaps you've had an experience like that where something is coming the next day. And you know a little bit about, we're not Jesus, we're not God, we don't know everything, but you know what's on the schedule, you know what's coming, and because of that, you can't sleep. You have nights like that sometimes? Perhaps a, a, the, the, maybe a simple, less you know, serious version of this is, there was a day where I did some road races, running and stuff like that, and the night before, no matter what you know, I had prepared or whatever, the, the night before, I, I was all jittery. Because I knew the next day, though it was voluntary and self-inflicted, I was gonna suffer. <laughs> Because I can't run a run a race and not run my hardest, right? So I know I'm gonna give it everything I got. And it's gonna hurt. And because of that, I can't I can't quite sleep. Perhaps you've had moments where you've had a big presentation at work the next day, big medical procedure, important visit with a doctor, stressful conversation you know you gotta have. Something's on the calendar tomorrow, and because of that, you can't sleep tonight. And you're filled with anxious turmoil. Do you wonder, what was Jesus, what was he sorrowful about? You keep reading the next couple chapters, he's going to get treated pretty, pretty poorly. He's going to get mocked and ridiculed. Was it the embarrassment and the shame that was coming, that was going to make, that was bringing him so much anxiety that night? Or maybe it was the physical pain. He would be beaten with whips, almost to the point of death, carried across outside the city, nailed to that cross with metal spikes through his wrists and ankles and left there to suffocate after hours and eventually dying. But if that was all that he was facing, all, that's all he was facing, mockery and physical pain, his sorrow here would be a little bit surprising. Now, all of us, if we knew that was coming the next day, we would be stressed, but the history of the church is filled with incredible examples of Christian martyrs who have faced their death in a way that seems different than what Jesus did here. Polycarp was a, an early Christian leader, about 80 years or so. Uh, he, was, he was in his late 80s. It was about the year 160 A.D. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And John was brought, I mean, uh, Polycarp was brought into a, a Roman Colosseum and told that for the last time, this is his last chance to recant his Christian faith and worship the Roman emperor. And if not, he would be burned at the stake. And Polycarp's answer the Roman magistrate was, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is clenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. In the face of his death, he said, you can't kill my soul. This fire is only going to last a little while and it's done. And yet Jesus, the night before he's dying, is praying I can hardly take this. It's a little bit surprising. 
The reason Jesus' sorrow was so much worse than Polycarp or any Christian martyr or anything you and I have ever faced is that Jesus was taking on something that nobody else ever has or could or will. He wasn't just taking on mockery and physical pain. He was taking on the wrath of the Heavenly Father for every sin of every sinner who would ever believe in Jesus. And you say, how do you, how do you know that? Verse 36, Jesus' prayer is this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Seems like an odd request. What cup? The Old Testament's prophets would speak of a cup of God's wrath, God's judgment. And they said that the wrath of God pouring out on someone or something or a city is like drinking the cup, drinking a cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus, like Isaiah and Jeremiah before him, uses this metaphor of a cup of the wrath of God. Judgment poured out. When Jesus was facing the cross, he wasn't just facing pain. Many men and women have gone through great pain. Jesus was facing something far worse than physical pain. He's facing the wages of sin. And that was a death more than just the stopping of a heartbeat. It was the weight of all the sin, all the judgment that you and I deserve. That's what he was facing. You say, well, Jesus never sinned, though. Why, why is he getting this wrath? He's going here in our place. He's going to the cross. He is before his God and our God in the garden, knowing that what's coming tomorrow is what, for him, was what you and I deserve today. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for us. He faced great sorrow for us. It was not the mockery, the pain. It was the wrath that he faced. And because of that, he was under tremendous distress. And it isn't worth, it's worth noticing here what great comfort it is to us that we have a Savior who's been where you've been. Isn't it a great comfort to know that your Savior did not love, live in some ivory tower, in some king's palace, to never suffer with us common people? No, he went to the cross. He went to the garden. He prayed in great sorrow and great anguish. In fact, far worse than any of us would ever suffer. So that in your darkest hour, whatever that darkness may be, you can hear the voice of God. You can hear Christ say, I have been there. I know what it's like. I know the darkness. I know the anguish and the sorrow. What great comfort that we have a Savior who has been in our shoes. He is a merciful God because He knows what it's like. He went through that for you and for me. And if His suffering wasn't enough, knowing the wrath that was coming, in His darkest moment, all of His closest friends abandoned Him. To add tragedy to tragedy, verse 32, Jesus had brought His disciples to Gethsemane. Verse 33, He gets His inner circle together. Peter, James, and John. These guys have been with Him all along. And He asked them simply this, Watch and pray. Watch and pray. After he goes and he prays, he comes back to them in verse 37, and he finds them asleep. 
We see Jesus' sorrow, and then we see our failure. We fail, like the disciples, we fail to watch and to pray for him. He faced great sorrow for us, but we, we let him down time and time again. He faced sorrow for us, but we do not watch or pray for him. His disciples were living in direct disobedience to what God had just, Christ had just asked them to do. He commanded them, watch and pray. Three times, in fact, he comes and reminds them of this. This is what I'm asking you to do right here, right now. I need you to stay awake and pray. Of course, we get it. We've all been there. For them, it was probably after midnight or so, and they just had a good meal, lamb, right? It's been a long week. They've been walking back and forth from Bethany every day, coming into Jerusalem. There's been a lot of ups and downs and turmoil. The celebration of the Jesus coming in on the donkey with all the shouts of Hosanna. It was only a few short days ago. All the teachings, all the things Jesus had done, all the ups and downs with the religious rulers, and they are exhausted. And if there's ever a time I can relate to the disciples, it's this moment of not being able to keep your eyes open. And I think everybody that's got a child less than 10, can, who can remember this? You can remember what it was like. Probably it does. I won't forget even after they're older. You know what it's like for your eyelids to feel like they're 100 pounds each and you just cannot keep them open. People are shouting at you and like, I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm sorry. I got nothing. At least once a week I'm there. And yet, aren't there times when you are just worn out, but there is something that's keeping your attention and you're able to stay awake? It might be a game that you're excited to watch. Some of you have had children born in the middle of the night, the Woolbrights, 11.45 at night. I asked Caleb, do you have any hard time? Do you have a hard time staying awake while your firstborn son was being born last Thursday night? Nope. He had no problem. He was here with me in a discipleship group at 5.30 in the morning on Thursday, a week and a half ago. At 11.45 that night, his eyes, they were like springboards, not 100 pounds. He was wide awake. If something is worth staying up for, you have no problem staying awake. For these disciples, they didn't really care. I mean, they cared, but they didn't really care. Jesus comes to them and specifically calls out Peter. And he says, Simon, are you asleep? And that name catches our attention. Jesus has not called Peter by the name Simon in Mark's gospel since Mark chapter 3 when he gave Simon a new name, Peter. It's like Jesus is saying, have you forgotten these last years that we've been together? Are you acting like you were before you knew, even knew me, Simon? Don't you know you are Peter? Don't you know you are one of my disciples? What are you doing? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. But Peter, James, John, and the other disciples, they don't. They go to sleep. They let their guard down. They don't watch, and they let temptation in. They told, Jesus told him, your spirit's willing. You say, they just told him, we, we'll, we'll die for you, Jesus. We'll do anything. He said, yeah, yeah. But your flesh, you have underestimated just how weak your flesh is. Jesus is warning them, your flesh is much weaker than you know. We'll see next week when we get to Mark chapter 14, verse 50. And they all left him and fled. That's what's coming. Jesus knows a temptation is coming for them to abandon their Savior in his darkest moment. And they're all going to fall to it. They think they can handle it. And yet Jesus knows the temptation is going to be stronger than their flesh. Picture this scene for a moment as Jesus 
has given instructions to his disciples. He has gone away to pray. He is collapsing under the agony of what he's facing. And he comes back to his disciples. And I just picture that moment before he wakes them up. As he's standing there, Peter and James and John are asleep, the ones he just asked to pray, and they're asleep. And Jesus is completely alone, abandoned by his best friends. They let their guard down. Temptation came in, and they fell asleep. You know, sometimes temptation is like we'll see what Judas did. Betrayal, stab in the back, directly speaking against Jesus. I'm, I'm out to get Jesus. But for many of us, especially those people that choose to come to church on a Sunday morning, perhaps the Judas temptation isn't your biggest temptation. It's the Peter, James, and John temptation. You just fall asleep. You just don't care enough to stay awake, to stay alert, to be attentive. And you let temptation creep in. Satan is wise enough, sneaky enough, that sometimes he doesn't bring the outright attack. Sometimes he comes around the flank, slides one in on you. And you got to be awake. you got to be alert. Being alert to temptation is being aware of what do we really care about? What do we value the most? Which is to say, whose will are you following? Who sets the calendar? Who makes the plans? When a push comes to shove, whose desires went out? Jesus asked this, but Peter and James and John, they chose this. They cared more about their plans, their desires. They cared more about a nap than they cared about Jesus. Are you on guard against temptation? Are you willing to watch and pray? Do you see temptation at your door? What do you really care about? Who makes the plans for your life? Do you justify things that seem, ah, they're okay, they're not that bad. I'm not stabbing Jesus in the back. Do you justify the way you live? But really, they're just seeking your own plans, your own desires, the things that you want. When we fail like Peter, James, and John, it's still failure, and it's pride. It's choosing my will over God's will. And Caleb pointed out a week after having a baby. Haven't we heard this story before? There's a garden. There's God's presence. There's temptation. And there's a failure to withstand the temptation. You see, what's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane is a reminder of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3. Perhaps you know that story. Adam and Eve were given just one command. One command from God the Father. And he said, do not eat of this one tree. You can have all this. Don't eat of this one tree. But there was a sneaky little snake. And he came in and said, hey, the fruit of this tree is not that bad. Did God really say, you don't have to eat this? He, he, he don't, don't this is okay. It's really okay. He gave a little, a little around the side temptation. He just questioned God. And Adam and Eve took of the fruit, and they ate it. Here, like Adam and Eve, Peter, James, and John, they chose what they wanted. Instead of listening to the one command Jesus gave, stay awake. In both cases, temptation doesn't look like an active betrayal. It's slow, it's appetizing, it's delicious fruit. The capacity to know good from evil seemed like a good thing to Adam and Eve. A simple nap. Seemed like a good idea for Peter, James, and John. In both places, they chose their desire, their will, their plan, not God's plan. 
I want what I want, not what God wants. He made this rule, but I don't care. I'm choosing my way. It's pride. It's disobedience. It's failure. It's sin. But praise God that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John, the other disciples were not the only ones there. Because there was a bigger temptation in that garden. Satan was working overtime on another man in that garden. And that man said no. And his name is Jesus. Peter, James, and John, like we do, failed. And Jesus didn't. Because when Satan came in and said to him, look at that mountain, the Mount of Olives. It's not that big. A couple hours from now, you could be on the other side of that garden. You could be in the middle of the other side of that, that mountain. You could be in the middle of the desert, and Judas will not find you as best he will try. You could have just slipped away, Jesus. And Jesus didn't. He stayed. He stayed on guard, Jesus did. He stayed alert. He didn't go asleep, go to asleep. He watched, he prayed, and he submitted to the will of his heavenly Father. And in doing so, he made salvation possible. Your salvation was dependent upon a prayer Jesus prayed in that garden. Jesus made salvation, salvation possible by praying, yet not what I will, but what you will. Listen to this prayer that Jesus prayed. He starts with his relationship with his father. He prayed, Abba, Father, a term of endearment that would have been, been very strange for the first century Jewish world. It's not childish. We are probably inappropriate to, to connect this to the word daddy in English. The way we use that is, is very childish and less reverent than Abba. Abba had a great sense of honor and respect, was also intimate and close. Jesus was unique to the point, to this point of using the name Abba to refer to Yahweh. So it showed a deep and what we know is eternal relationship between the Father and Son. He starts with praying to his Abba, Father, and then he praises him. He says, all things are possible for you. Father, I know who you are. I know you are omnipotent, he says. I know you're in control of everything. And because you're in control of everything, all the events of human history are under your control. Jesus knew that his heavenly Father had the power to change anything and everything. And so based on his relationship with his Father, based on the truth of who his Father is, Jesus lays out his request. And he says, let this cup pass. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is honest with his heavenly father that this is going to hurt. More than just physical pain, he knew the wrath was going to be torture for him. And so he let God know his request. He knew, like he preached to his disciples, any good, good father loves to give good gifts to their children. How much more does your heavenly father love to give good gifts to those who love him? Jesus knew his heavenly father loves to give good things to him. And so Jesus models a prayer for us by praying what he wants from God. That is a good and holy thing for us to do, to pray and let God know, this is what's on my heart. I know who you are. I know what you can do. And here's my request. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't stop with his request. No. All three times he comes and he prays the same words. And all three times he finishes this way. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Do you hear how that is the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? 
In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve said, I see your will, not your will, my will. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane does the other way. He says, I see your will, and it is different than my will, yet not my will, your will. It's an undoing. It's a redoing, and it is a saving act for us. The choice Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden sent all of human history for all, everybody who would descend from them, which is everybody, on a path to sin that apart from our Savior, everybody is headed toward destruction. Everybody lives in pride. Everybody lives in their own desires until Jesus comes in and redoes the story and does it backwards. Instead of saying, my will, not your will, Jesus says, not my will, your will. And in so doing, he opens a new door that had never been opened before. And it was the door of our salvation. Hebrews captures for us this incredible act of faith by telling us about this prayer that he prayed and telling us this is how our salvation is possible. Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. How powerful is that, that the author of Hebrews remembers this prayer in the garden. And he says, don't you remember that he, he offered up, he, he begged? And yet it says in verse 9, and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Your salvation, I'm not overstating this, your salvation was dependent upon this prayer. That there was a door that was not open until Jesus prayed this prayer and rewrote the course of history, changing what Adam and Eve did, and now making a way for finally somebody was obedient to the will of the Heavenly Father. Jesus trusted in this moment. Not only is God all-knowing, He knows everything that's going to happen and will happen. Not only is He all-powerful, but God is good. God is good. When we decide, like Adam and Eve, not your will, God, my will. What we're saying to God is, you aren't good. At least not as good as I think I am. Because you have your ways and they're not good enough for me. My way is better than your way. And Jesus submitted himself to the Father and said, your way is better than my way. And he submitted to God. Jesus had taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 to pray a prayer many of you know. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the truest expression of that prayer ever prayed was this moment in the garden. Jesus had every opportunity to forsake it. And yet he submitted to the heavenly Father's will. What I want to offer you today is that this prayer would become your prayer. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Because to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, is to pray this prayer. To follow Jesus is to pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. To be a Christian is to live in submission to Christ. To recognize God is our Heavenly Father. God has invited you to call him Abba Father, to live with this holy, 
perfect reverence and respect and yet deep intimacy and love. In Romans chapter 8, Paul, quoting Jesus in the garden, said, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You and I get to call our heavenly Father, Father, because of what Jesus did. And then we pray our requests, our desires, but then we pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. He invites us, Jesus, when he proclaimed for people to follow him, he would often say, repent and believe. What is repentance? It's a change of heart, a change of mind. Instead of me seeking my will, I'm seeking your will. Push comes to shove. Who sets the calendar? Who's in charge? Who makes the plans? The world says, make your own plans. Do what you want. Follow your heart. Follow your desires. The truest way to happiness, the world says, is to search deep within your heart and do what you want. Dream big. Follow your heart. And the Bible says that is a fast path to destruction because it will not lead to holiness. It will not lead to happiness. It is a lie. And Satan has been whispering it in your ear ever since the Garden of Eden. But instead of listening to Satan in the garden, listen to Jesus in the garden who gave you the true path to life, the true path to holiness, the true path to satisfaction. And it is the opposite of what the world preaches. And it is this, yet not what I will, but what you will. He sets the plans. He sets the agenda. He is in charge. That's what it means to be a Christian. Repent of seeking your heart, your desires, your wants. Seek the will of the Father. Follow him. Submit to him. To be a Christian is to pray that prayer. And when we celebrate baptism in a moment, in essence, that's what everybody's saying. They're saying, Jesus has come in. He has changed my heart. He has given me new life. And now instead of seeking my desires, my will, I'm seeking the will of the Father. He has given me a new life. I don't want to seek my stuff anymore. I know it leads to destruction. By proclaiming my faith in baptism, I'm saving. I'm saying Jesus has saved me. He's shown me the light. He has shown me that I can follow Jesus, and it's better. It is better. Will it bring suffering? You can count on it. Jesus modeled that. Paul picks it up in Romans. Right after he says, you've received the adoption of as, sin, uh, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the next thing he says is, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. You're going to suffer like Jesus did. And in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's no greater path, not an easy path, but there's no greater path than following Jesus. And it's the path that says, the first day you're a Christian and every day after that, I'm following your heart, not mine. I want your desires, not my desires. And it's going to be a bumpy path and there's going to be hard roads. And I tell everybody who's been baptized, watch out this week. Satan is whispering temptation in your ear this week. You're going to face hardship. But praise God, it's a path that leads not to death, but to life. It goes through suffering, but it leads to glorification. To follow Jesus is to pray Yet not what I will, but what you will. If you've never prayed that prayer, and I don't mean just a, a prayer at a revival or VBS or something that says check a box and then go live how you want. But this is the prayer I mean. I mean that my entire life, I'm praying, 
Yeah, not what I will, but what you will. If you've never prayed that, to pray that today is to receive salvation. And I, I plead that you'd give us the privilege of helping walk alongside you in that prayer. Because we all need each other. You can pray it alone. You don't need me. We can't save you. Jesus saves you. But I pray that you'll find somebody to help walk you through that path. Because it is a lifetime of obedience and discipleship to live with a posture of faith that says, not my will, but your will, God. And if you have prayed that prayer, especially as you recognize people are being baptized, I pray that you would celebrate and you would remember your own baptism. And that you would recommit today to a lifetime of a posture that says, Jesus, Abba, Father, not what I will, but what you will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of hearing Jesus' prayer. God, just imagine as Peter awoke from his stupor, he must have overheard Christ pray this prayer. And some days later, he remembered what a powerful prayer it was. And he told it to Mark, and Mark wrote it down so that we could hear it today. What a gift. Father, we confess we, in our own natural desires, pray the exact opposite of this prayer every day. We pray, God, not your will, but my will. We seek our own desires. And yet, in your great grace, you have pursued us not while we were holy, but while we were sinners, so that we can know you and follow you. God, remind us today of our salvation, made possible by Christ. And for any who do not yet know you, we pray for your spirit to work in their hearts even now, that they would see that there is a better way than following the desires of our own heart, but that instead we would see the glory and the goodness of following you. And so, Father, collectively we pray, not what I will, not what we will, but what you will. In Jesus' precious name, amen.